Well, good morning. I am Stephen. I'm the pastor. Good to be back. I'm excited. I, if you have a bulletin, grab that, open it up. There's a passage of scripture we're going to look at. We're starting a series today called Real. It's called Real because the Bible is real. The Bible is real. It's not sugar-coated because it wants to meet us where we are and it wants to give us space to be real. So I'm just going to jump into the text we're going to be looking at today. It's Romans 7, verses 8 through 25. Friends, listen, this is God's word. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So this is Paul getting real. I mean, uncomfortably real. The honesty of this, I think, is striking. And, and different people have all kinds of reactions to this. Some of you are thinking, I'm lost. <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. Sin, mind, law, like death, like what is this guy talking about? Right? Then there's others of you who are thinking, wow, this guy's really messed up. I wouldn't want to be him. And then still others of you are thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like me. Like, 
I'm really messed up. Like, and I feel this, but I would never admit this to anyone, let alone write it in a book. And then along those lines, some of you are thinking, wow, like this is in the Bible? This is real. The guy who wrote this wasn't just an ordinary person. He was the Apostle Paul. Paul, he met Jesus personally. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. He was one of the key leaders in the early church. He wrote half the New Testament. And this is his confession. Paul's writing about himself in a letter that he wrote to a church. So this isn't a small group setting. This isn't Paul, like someone grabbed his notes at what he was going to share when he went to a small group with his close friends. Like, no, this was a letter that was supposed to be read to the entire church. And so Paul is getting real. He is exposing himself. And when you think about it from that perspective, the question comes to my mind, like, how can he do this? Like, what would give Paul the freedom, maybe, to admit this about himself and to a church? I mean, this is a guy who was in charge of a lot of stuff. This is a guy who was constantly being attacked for his leadership. But, man, if, he were, if he's going to admit this, I mean, he's going to be disregarded, right? His ministry would be discredited. What's he doing here, and how can he come out and say these things? I think we need to understand that this is from chapter 7 of a letter that he wrote. I think we need chapters 1 through 6. I want to read something to you. Uh, This is from Walter Wengerin's The Book of the Dun Cow. Okay? It says this. He went outside into the rain, grumbling blackly to himself and looking around for some sticky mud. Dripping mud would be useless. Thick, sticky mud is what he wanted. This he found in the middle of an open field. He pushed up a pile of the stuff with his claws, kicking it out behind him and patting it smooth. Then he straddled the pile and settled down upon it as if it had been a nest of eggs to be hatched. It was his poultice. Mud, be nice to that cut, he said. Mud, be a friend to me. Profound, isn't it? Unbelievably powerful, right? You have no idea what this is talking about. (laughs) No idea, right? Why? Because I just read to you from a part of chapter 7 of a book. Right? It doesn't make any sense. You're not supposed to start a book in chapter 7. I have another book. Maybe you've heard of this one, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Let's try this. Harry quickly looked down again as Professor McGonagall silently placed a four-legged stool in front of the first years. On top of the stool, she put a pointed wizard's hat. This hat was patched and frayed and extremely dirty. Aunt Petunia wouldn't have let it in the house. Harry thought wildly, noticing that everyone in the hall was now staring at the hat, so he stared at it too. For a few seconds, 
There was complete silence. Then the hat twitched. A rip near the brim opened wide like a mouth, and the hat began to sing. Now, some of you know exactly what's going on here, right? Some of you do. Some of you still, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Some of you know exactly what's going on. Why? Because you read chapters one through six, right? Because you know the story of Harry Potter. You know this is the sorting hat when all the students are going to get sorted into their houses at Hogwarts, right? And so because you know the story of Harry Potter, you know what happened in chapters one through six, so you understand what's happening in chapter seven. So I think same thing is true here. The realness of Romans 7 is confusing or not confusing to you based on what you know about what it says, what the letter says in chapters 1 through 6. So we're going to look in detail at this section of verses over the next seven weeks. So throughout Lent, this is where we're going to camp. We're going to spend a lot of time looking in great detail and seeing all kinds of things in this text. But first, we need to ask the question, where are we? Where are we in this set of paragraphs here? And so today we're going to survey the first six chapters of this letter, Romans 1 through 6, so that we can see what gave Paul the confidence to be this real with other people. This is important because many people, most of the people in this room, want to experience a deep and a meaningful relationship with God. Often, though, we don't experience this very often because we don't get this real with God. I mean, how could we, really? I mean, wouldn't God be angry with us if this is what we told him about what goes on inside of us? And just that fear of how God might react creates a wall and that it brings forth a shallow relationship with God. And I want to tell you that Romans 1 through 6 can tear this wall down. Romans 1 through 6 can open your heart and your mind up so that you can be this real with God, with yourself, and maybe with others but we're not going to talk about others this week. And so the question is, how can Paul, like how, Paul, how can Paul be real? So we're going to look at how Paul can be real. Um, and we're going to just survey the first six chapters of Romans. So the first thing, in chapter one, Paul says this. He says, Jesus is right and God is on our side. Jesus is right and God is on our side. So there is great news. This letter is news. It's news that comes from Paul that he got from Jesus. Paul is saying in, this, in, in chapter one, he says something world-changing has happened. God, the God, the God of gods, the creator of all things, he has declared that Jesus is right by raising him from the dead. He says that God's power has entered into the world and it's beginning to fix everything that's wrong. And we who think that Jesus is right, we're experiencing this power. It rescues us. It brings us into a relationship with God. And so God's power is active in our lives. It's active in anyone's life who commits to follow Jesus. 
And in chapter one, he says, you have God as father and as savior. He is on your side. You receive his grace and peace. And so having God on your side leads you to be this real in chapter seven. Well, we really need this good news about Jesus and what God has done because the rest of chapter one gives us some bad news. Right after that good news announcement, there's this bad news. And the bad news is that we made a mess of things. Just to summarize the second half of Romans one, we made a mess of things. We need God so much because there is so much that's wrong with people and wrong with the world. So many people are far away from God. We do what's expedient and not what's meaningful. We don't worship the God who created us. Instead, we worship stuff. We worship ourselves. We worship our desires. And worshiping money, power, and sex, it creates a spiral of human brokenness and disintegrated societies with ever-increasing negative consequences. That's chapter one. Well, in chapter two, Paul says, and guess what? Religion made things worse. Religion made things worse. The world out there was far from God, but the Jewish people back then made things even worse. And actually the only thing worse than a society that has abandoned God is a religion that is hypocritical. And so religious or atheist, God's bullseye for people is that all of us would live glorious lives of love and of care, love for God and love for others. But all of us have missed the target. All of us have missed it. And humanity has spiraled down worse and worse and worse. And then in chapter three, Paul amplifies the announcement that he made in chapter one. He says, Jesus came to forgive us. He says so much in chapter three, but to summarize it, Jesus came to forgive us. In the resurrection, God declared that Jesus was right. And in chapter three, God declares that anyone who commits to following Jesus is also right. God said Jesus' ways are the right ways, so if you follow Jesus, then you are as right as he is. Committing to Jesus is the pathway out of the downward spiral. Jesus' death brought forgiveness and freedom. All of us, all of us are part of the decline of the world. But God took definitive action, not to condemn the world, but to save it through forgiveness. And forgiveness required the death of Jesus. Author, pastor Tim Keller said this. He said, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. No one who has been deeply wronged just forgives. If someone wrongs you, there are only two options. One, you make them suffer, or two, you refuse revenge and forgive them, but then you suffer. And he goes on, he says, on the cross, we see God forgiving us. And that was possible only because God suffered. 
On the cross, God's love satisfied his own justice by suffering, bearing the penalty for sin. There is never forgiveness without suffering. And so the cross of Jesus shows us how much our sins hurt God. The cross of Jesus shows us how far God's love will go to extend forgiveness to us. And when we believe that about Jesus, when we believe that about the cross, that in Jesus, God is showing us his love. When we believe that, when we redirect the focus of our lives onto Jesus and following him, God says, you are right. And so, knowing that you're forgiven lets you be real in chapter seven. Because you aren't afraid and you don't have to hide your guilt because it's been forgiven by the one who matters most. Well, then he goes on in chapter four and he says this, he says, guess what? We don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to earn God's love. When God says that you are right to commit to Jesus, amazing things happen. You don't have to work to earn God's blessings. You don't have to work to earn his love. God guarantees his love to us, not because we work to earn it, but because we became his children when we committed to following Jesus. And so this gets people off of the spiritual treadmill that is ever increasing in its elevation and always seems to be getting faster and faster and never, ever stops. Like, if you're trying to earn your way to heaven, if you're trying to get right with God by, by doing enough good, you will never, ever finish working, ever. You'll never rest. And God doesn't want that for you. No good parent treats their children like that. No good parent says, you have to earn my love. And knowing that you've been set free from the spiritual treadmill, the treadmill that tells you you have to earn God's love, knowing you've been set free from that lets you be real in chapter 7. And then we have chapter 5. And in chapter 5, Paul says so much, so much, so much, so much. But to summarize, he says, we have peace with God. We have peace with God because God has said that we are right to trust Jesus. Our conscience is calm. We have nothing to fear. And in this chapter, Paul says, even when we suffer, God even changes how we see our suffering. Now, when we suffer, it reminds us that this life isn't all that there is. Now when we suffer, God tells us, you know what, you're living now for something that's coming. And what's coming is really, really, really good. And so our hope in the future, our hope in the future with God gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so we know that God is with us because God's spirit dwells with us. God's spirit dwells in us. It is poured into our hearts, which radically affirms that peace that we have with God. 
And so knowing that you have peace with God in every circumstances, that lets you be real in chapter seven. It gives us a radical confidence. And then in chapter six, Paul says that God's love adopts us. God's love adopts us. In chapter six, he talks about baptism. And he says, in baptism, God puts his name on us and adopts us into his family. And baptism is the ceremony that God uh, adapted to convince us that he's working in our lives, to convince us that he's real, to convince us that he's with us, to convince us that he's given us his power. Our sin-filled, broken selves are metaphorically, they metaphorically die with Jesus when he died on the cross. And then a new version of ourselves is raised that is filled with Jesus's muscles. So God raises us up and gives us Jesus's muscles to love God and to love other people. And we have to remember this. We have to remember this powerful meaning of our baptism in order to walk in our baptism's power. So God gives us Jesus's muscles, but we have to work them out in real life, in real decisions, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions. And we work those things out as those who have been blessed and brought into the family, not in an effort to try to get into the family. So the worst parts of of the dark side of religion is that it makes you work in hopes that you might earn something, but the good news of Jesus is that God gives you everything and then says, now work out what I've given you. And so knowing that you are adopted by God and you're given power to grow, that lets you be real in chapter seven. And this brings us back to chapter seven. Just a couple of verses to remind you. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yeah, the reason Paul can be this real is because he knows the answer. He doesn't just know the answer up here. He knows the answer here. He knows the answer in the changes that he has seen in his life, in his heart, with his actions. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, how can Paul be this real? Paul gets this real because he feels safe with God. He feels safe He's got a relationship with God. At the core of his being, Paul knows that he has been loved by God. And so, before you face Romans 7 and the worst part of your heart, Paul offers you Romans 1 through 6. Romans 1 through 6 presents to you a God who loves you, who is wonderfully kind to you, a God who took all the steps necessary to bring you back to him. And it's this kindness of God that makes us want to come back. 
right? If God were going to, to smash you like a bug, if he were going to um, destroy you forever in hell, like you wouldn't come back, right? You wouldn't come back. You'd run and you'd stay away and you would hide. But Romans 2 verse 4 actually says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's because God has demonstrated love. It's his kindness that leads us to come back. It's his kindness and his love, his forgiveness and his peace. It's the power that he's given us. It's all of that 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 enables us to face the worst of who we are sometimes and turn back to God. So I want to take a minute and I just just want to talk to the Christians for a second. The Christians are here today. Christians, is Romans 7 true about you? It's true about me. Is it true about you? Then Romans 1 through 6 is also true about you. If you commit your life to Jesus, if you are following Jesus, Romans 1 through 6 is as true of you as Romans 7. And God knows it, and God understands it, and God loves you in the midst of both of these things being true at the same time. Okay, now I want to talk to you who aren't Christians. Let me ask you this. Is Romans 7 true about you? Like when you read this, does it resonate with you? Some of the stuff that's said in here, do you think, yeah, I can identify with that? If it does, then the author would desperately love for you to make Romans 1 through 6 true of you. If you identified all with Romans 7, Paul would invite you to come to Jesus so that Romans 1 through 6 would also be true of you. You do that. The way you make 1 through 6 true of you is to commit to following Jesus. It's to recognize that I know there's lots of religions. I know there's all kinds of people that make all kinds of statements God made a statement and he wanted this statement to be broadcast to the entire world so that everyone could hear it and everyone could respond. And that statement was that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is right. The risen Jesus is the one who did it right. Everything he taught is right. Everything that he did was right. And he bore your sins in his body when he was hung on the tree. And God raised him up so that you would know, so that you could hear that if you follow him, you can be right too. And it's not a, it's not a competition right? It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an argument. You know, it's not, oh, I want to make you right so that everyone else is wrong. Like, that's not the point. The point is, do you want to know God? 
Do you want to walk with God? Do you want to live with God? Do you want to be with God? Then come to Jesus. Commit and follow Jesus. And everything that we have seen, everything in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 will be true about you. Paul says, man, this is us. This is who we are. If you're struggling with this, I am just like you. I wrote half the New Testament. I know all the things that we're supposed to say. I have the authority of Jesus to proclaim the gospel, to write the Bible, and this is my experience. The only thing that would keep me going, Paul would say, the only thing that keeps me going, knowing that this is true and having to battle with this part of my heart is knowing chapters one through six, is knowing that I'm not alone, is it knowing that God is with me in the struggle and that he cares over and over and over again in the ministry of Jesus. He found the people that were struggling and he said, I see you, I care about you. I know everything that you're carrying. I know all the things that nobody else knows. And I am here. I am with you. I love you. If you will give me these things, I will take the punishment that these things deserve and you will be forgiven. Commit to Jesus today. Follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for shocking us by being this real in the Bible. Thank you that we can read a Bible that doesn't shy away from all of the darkness, doesn't shy away of the things that go on in our hearts, in our minds. But it surrounds those things. Thank you, God, for the reality that This is just part of a larger story. A story where you are showing how gracious you are. A story that you show that there is no end to your love. Help us, God, to devote ourselves to Jesus. Help us to devote ourselves to this book. The blessings are just unbelievable that you would do these things for us. To draw us closer to yourself as we get real with you and with ourselves. Help us to open our hearts to you. And when we do, God, please speak to us with the love and the forgiveness and the power of forgiveness. We love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name.